For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Richard Dooley. He's been a nurse for 10 years at St. Mary's Hospital in Tucson. He is also now a survivor of coronavirus. A conversation with the managing artistic director of Invisible Theater about their decision to reopen this weekend with a reimagined staging of the play Filming O'Keefe. You may know how you feel about contemporary issues, but do you know why? The author of Sway, Uncovering Unconscious Bias, offers some insight. And essayist Chris DeShiel considers the paradox of the short film masterpiece La Jetée. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. On March 26th, only a few more than 100 cases of coronavirus had been diagnosed in Arizona. That is when nurse Richard Dooley believes that he became infected while on the job. On June 20th, the day I interviewed him about his experience, the number of cases reported in just the previous 24 hours was 3,200. The end of this summer will mark Dooley's 10-year anniversary at St. Mary's, where he's now assigned to the telemetry unit. As someone who's been on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic since it began, and as one of the earliest people to contract and then recover from the virus, I asked Richard Dooley to share his story. The latter six hours of my shift, I started sneezing. I felt like allergies once a year. It had just rained a few days or a week prior, and so the wildflowers were out. And so I was just certain that this was my first uh, reaction to wildflowers. You know, sneezing once in a while and clearing my throat and having kind of a runny nose a little bit. Um, I thought, if I feel this way tomorrow on Friday, I'm going to call in sick on Saturday. And I kind of generally got worse got a little bit short of breath, so it kind of came on quickly for me. And did you suspect that you might have the virus at that point? Well, my wife was very vigilant, and she was already on her mind. And so she went out and bought a a tympanic thermometer, the kind that you hold, and we don't have to make contact with the body. And so we began taking my temperature. And so after a few days um, of feeling really sick, um, getting more sick, where I couldn't talk without coughing. And there were coughing fit in the middle of the night. So I started having night sweats. And so I called my doctor and arranged a telemeeting. He told me, you know, 99.9% of patients with COVID have a temperature. So he was essentially telling me, you don't have COVID. Don't worry about it. You know, I'll prescribe these, uh, some medicine to help you bring up any chest congestion, which I didn't have really chest congestion, just shortness of breath. I got worse and worse, and then I think a week had gone by, and then I was asking to be tested, and they weren't testing anyone unless you were admitted to the hospital. So they finally agreed to test me because I reported to my occupational health and my manager that I really had shortness of breath, and but not the other symptoms like the high temperature that was required to get tested. And was this at St. Mary's, the hospital that you yes, worked for? Yes, I live very close to St. Mary's. So I drove there feeling awful went to that tent. They swabbed me, which was very uncomfortable. When I got home from the test, when it was about 10.30 a.m., and I got a call from my manager saying that she had to report that I was exposed. Um, And so then it all made sense that maybe I do have it. Um, So that was on the 1st. The result came back on the 3rd that I was positive. 
I was out for about one month. I returned on April 26th or 7th, but, you know, I had to have two negative tests before I could come back. Now, that was a requirement for my primary doctor, not from the hospital. So I had to contact the hospital, and after some emails to some higher-ups, informing them that I want to come back to work, I feel better, but I need to have some negative tests. They um, agreed to test me. Um, They tested me once. Uh, It was negative, and I took a second test at a Walgreens drive-thru to conserve the second test that the hospital would administer. I wanted to save it for someone who, a patient, you know, because at this time the hospitals were rationing kind of their test kits because there weren't a lot, and this was going on statewide. How long did it take you to get back to feeling what you call normal, Richard? I mean, when did your strength return, and and how was it when you went back to start doing rounds again? I think two and a half to three weeks, I was better and ready to go back. I still feel like my sense of smell is not 100%, like maybe 80%. It definitely diminished while we were sick. And I will say that, although I'm not happy that I get brought it home to my wife, um, I think for us both to be sick made it easier for us to be with each other because we didn't have to isolate from each other. Well, I heard a physician from somewhere else in the state say that Arizona was at a point right now in the pandemic where we we needed surge bedding, that we were ready for, we needed extra beds, we were ready for some sort of extra healthcare facility like the ones that we saw, for instance, set up in New York. But then he quickly added, we lacked the personnel to man those beds. Does that connect with what you've seen on the ground? Yes, they're trying to recruit nurses as fast as they can, patient care technicians, Yes, I think, but that's a that's a countrywide issue. I mean, it's, it's been going on for a long time, so I think I think that doctor is correct. As a nurse, what is a significant change that you would like to see made? Is there a way that people can help? Well, I just think if we're all wearing the mask, that's and um, aware of our positioning. Um, I think that that helps. You know, people get all kinds of misinformation from the internet, the media. But I think it's just um, a general demonstration of, of civility and consideration for other people to wear a mask. Uh, do you have to wear an N95? No, but something covering your mouth. Um, and if we all did that and was, were aware of our spatial or physical distancing from each other, and if we took this seriously, uh, wear the mask, wash our hands, be aware of physical distancing. The huge surge in coronavirus cases sweeping the Southwest is causing many businesses that were planning on a quick reopening to reconsider. In the case of an arts organization like Invisible Theater in Tucson, reopening meant getting creative. Deciding that a smaller audience, one quarter the theater's normal capacity, could be properly social distanced, managing artistic director Susan Clausen and her staff outlined a series of protocols. Next, AZPM business reporter Jake Steinberg talks to Susan Clausen about the changes needed to ensure that the show could go on at Invisible Theater. Every decision now is a difficult one. (laughs) We don't know if anything will change come the fall, but we know we're ready to open and all of our attention has been put into not doing Zoom theater and more power to the people who are doing it. That's great. But we're about live theater and we wanted to put our energy into coming up with a safe 
and sane way that we could do live theater. Actually, Invisible Theater got its name from the invisible energy that flows between performers and an audience that makes the magic of theater. So if I'm a patron, how will my experience of going to Invisible Theater be different from normal times? You will have a set time to enter, and we're using both the front door and the back door. There will not be any tickets handed. There will be no exchange of any kind of money or objects. We will take you to your seats. The lobby will merely be a pass-through. The production of Filming O'Keefe has all of the artistic integrity of a fully produced piece, although the four actors will be socially distant, yet the connection between them is so intimate that the integrity of the play by Eric Lane is there. Could you tell us about filming O'Keefe? Yes. So the play by Eric Lane takes place at Lake George. Um, There's a mother and her son, high school-age son, who live on the property where George O'Keefe and Alfred Stieglitz lived. And he's doing a project on the relationship between Stieglitz and between George O'Keefe and between art and life and all those good, wonderful questions about family and relationship. When this all began and we first postponed and then we rethought, of course, there are kisses that would happen if it were fully staged. There's uh, a facial slap that would happen if it was staged without distancing. All of that happens, but in a different way. So you've got a theater, which is a fairly, you know, enclosed interior space. And we're hearing a lot and thinking a lot right now about the mist that is constantly spraying out of everybody's mouth at all times in a way that we weren't before. And I wonder how you've addressed those concerns within your theater. Everyone is wearing a mask inside the theater. Any income that we had, we put into making our facility venue ready. All the patrons, because I'm personally calling everyone who has a reservation to go through this list of what the expectation is, making sure they feel comfortable. Is operating at 25% capacity sustainable? Can you pay your people or how long can you keep that up? The only thing that anyone has ever, in my tenure here at the theater, which this is the end of my 45th year, have ever said I was conservative about is fiscally conservative. We had a little bit of a buffer, but 25% when you already have a very uh, tight belt on a budget, I, I don't know. Um, we have kept everybody on salary. We have kept our staff on salary. The um, the union that represents over 50,000 live theater actors, the Actors' Equity Association, um, they recently came out with some requirements for theaters to reopen. And one of them is that in that area, the pandemic has to be under control. Does any of that give you second thoughts about committing to reopening? That doesn't give me second thoughts because I look at the statistic beyond the number and I look what's in Pima County and I look at, you know, the horror that's happening at the Navajo Reservation. I look at the horror that's happening in the prisons. I look at the horror that's happening at the border. 
I also know that what we are doing is as safe as going anywhere to the market, to getting takeout food, to, to doing any of that. And nobody's forced to come. And people you know, say, thank you. For an hour and a half, I didn't think about what was going on in our world. <laughs> you know, And I think everybody needs a respite on occasion to let our imagination take us to um, another place. Jake Steinberg interviewed Susan Clausen, Managing Artistic Director of Invisible Theater. Filming O'Keefe is running now through June 28th on the main stage at First and Drachman in Tucson. Due to the limited seating, reservations must be made by phone. We have a link and photos of the cast in their masks on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Prejudice is driven by fear and insecurity. These negative emotions can propel sloppy decision-making and lead to tragedy. Is there any way to recognize the forces that shape a person's internal bias and thus improve the way we think? Pragya Argawal, a behavioral scientist and journalist, is hopeful. In her book, Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias, she gives insight into how the human brain works and the consequences of mental fallacies and heuristics. Here is Elisa Ivanitskaya with an interview. Biases are formed because we cannot process a lot of information very, very quickly. And so we form these templates in our brain. We match incoming information with these already existing templates so that we can make really quick decisions. And some of these preferences are very harmless. For instance, if I prefer a certain flavor of ice cream or cereal, or parents have a positive bias towards the children that I talk about in the book, they don't create threat, they don't create prejudice, they don't result in any kind of life and death situations. In her book, Dr. Agarwal cites many examples of how stereotypes can also cost lives. These stereotypes are so deeply ingrained that we do not stop to weigh up the options that we have and that affects our interactions with other people and decisions like in legal context or medical context or police officers, when they have to make really, really quick decisions, we fall back on these stereotypes and make these associations. For instance, black men are associated with aggressiveness or black women are associated with being angry Then a police officer more likely to consider that a threat rather than if they saw a white person. People can even be unaware of their prejudice. Implicit bias, according to Dr. Agarwal, has recently become a buzzword and is often used as an excuse for not taking action. A lot of these biases are learned through socialization, but because we learn them through our lives, we can unlearn them. We can create compassion towards other people which are, who are naturally not part of our group. We can break out of these echo chambers. And I do firmly believe that we cannot justify and excuse our actions based on this fact that unconscious biases are hardwired within us. Not only can negative bias harm the communities subjected to it, positive bias raises expectations, devalues achievements, and puts additional pressure on people. Positive stereotypes are also stereotypes. They are also a homogenizing group. They are also assigning certain qualities to a whole mass of group which is made of disparate individuals. Positive stereotypes can also trap individuals who do not conform to these stereotypes. 
And that can denigrate their achievements as well. By saying, for instance, that all Asians are very good at maths, their achievements can be seen in that light rather than saying this person is actually excellent and has worked hard. Often these positive stereotypes go hand in hand with some kind of negative stereotype as well. So a positive stereotype of black person being very athletic gone hand in hand with thinking that they might be lacking in intellectual ability. And so I think any stereotype of any kind, really what it does is to kind of homogenize and dehumanize a whole community. Bias can also overlap, subjecting a person to multiple types of discrimination because of race, gender, sexual orientation or social economic status. When different forms of bias or these stereotype groups intersect, and these different labels intersect, it can create a heightened form of bias and discrimination. So for instance, if you look at black men and black women, they are treated differently and they have different stereotypes associated with them. There is a hierarchy because of gender bias in the way that men and women are treated in a society. And it might be that black women are discriminated against more. When we looked at um, Breonna Taylor's death, there hasn't been much discussion about the stats about how many black women are shot how they are treated by police, how they're sexually harassed and raped. And there's no data. Data isn't disaggregated by black women and men. So we, they become invisible victims. I think we need to be really aware of these kind of different categories and how these different labels carry some associations and stereotypes as well. Fear and insecurities make people more susceptible to bias. And some politicians benefit from that, says Dr. Agarwal. We are seeing it again and again, not just in the U.S., but also other parts of the world in India. These partisan politics are laying down these really, really strong lines between who is part of our tribe and who's not. It's creating this fear of outsiders, immigrants coming and taking your jobs, or they create a feeling of threat. A lot of political leaders are doing that. They're playing on this fear. And when people are more likely to retreat back into stereotypical prejudices, they're more likely to retreat back into their safety zones, these comfort groups, these words and language that are used by media, by politicians, they're creating these divides. To combat having a group mentality, Dr. Agarwal says, people need to acknowledge that everyone has some kind of bias and should take responsibility for educating themselves. Each of us can start with ourselves, educating ourselves, stepping back, thinking about it, being very open-minded about it, creating non-judgmental spaces for ourselves and others to be able to talk about these things and being open. Whatever associations we've made and have carried in the past, we can question them and we can understand their implications. But on a wider level, the societal and the structural issues have to be considered at policy level, have to be, the organizations have to consider it different policymakers have to consider it. They have to consider what policies are actually feeding these inequities and inequalities as well. So I think it has to work hand in hand at different micro and macro level. Because the human brain uses shortcuts when making decisions, bias cannot be completely eradicated. But people can mitigate the negative consequences and address systemic discrimination. Humans are good, kind people. We all want to try and do the right thing. We want to make positive change, I think. We all want to do that. If we stop creating these feelings of threat and fear where we are constantly feeling anxious, that means that our amygdala is falling back on some of these templates that we already have that are hardwired within us. 
it is possible that we can create a positive momentum and change by harnessing the power of herd mentality. We can use that to influence behaviors and choices to create a fairer and more equitable world where justice and equality exists and where my children grow up to be in a safe space where they can exert their identity and where they can be what they want to be without fear. Elisa Ivanitskaya spoke with Pragya Agarwal about her book Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias, published by Bloomsbury. In 1995, Terry Gilliam, the American filmmaker and founding member of Monty Python, made a movie called Twelve Monkeys. It was loaded with his style and sensibility and featured a cast led by Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, and Brad Pitt. Its intricate, more-than-two-hour story was really just embellishment on an audacious cinematic triumph that was made 33 years earlier. That film clocked in at less than one-quarter of 12 Monkeys' running time. But proving that less can also be more, this shorter, less technically sophisticated film possesses a rare emotional quality that has grown even more relevant across time. Here is Chris DeShield with an appreciation. I find it ironic that one of the most influential works of cinema, French director Chris Marker's 1962 short film La Jetée, is on the face of it so uncinematic. But this is, in fact, one of the things about it that inspired other filmmakers. La Jetée, which in English means the pier, is composed almost entirely of stills. So instead of the motion we always expect from a film, a motion we assume when we use the word movie, We see here what is more like a film strip or a slideshow, in which a succession of still images is accompanied by a narrator telling a story. The jetty or pier of the title is actually a long observation platform at a large Paris airport. A boy, looking at the planes landing and taking off, notices a woman at the end of the platform, a woman whose face impresses itself deeply on his memory. He then witnesses a man getting killed as he runs toward the woman. Sometime after this event, as the narrator abruptly tells us, World War III destroys civilization as we know it. Survivors of the war, who call themselves the victors, live underground in Paris, while other survivors, the defeated, are kept as prisoners. A group of scientists uses prisoners as test cases in attempts to travel through time in order to bring knowledge and materials into the present that can help keep the human race from dying out. Our main character, now an adult and a prisoner, becomes the first experimental success because his obsession with the image of the woman at the airport gives the scientists an anchor on which to base their efforts. He actually travels into the past, meets the woman he saw as a boy, and they become lovers. This time she is near him. He says something. She doesn't mind, she answers. They have no memories, no plans. Time builds itself painlessly around them. As landmarks, they have the very taste of this moment they live, and the scribbling on the walls. This science fiction scenario, which you have to admit sounds outlandish, is treated by Marker as purely subjective. The time traveler is tied to a table, his eyes covered, with electrodes attached to his body, and the scientists use drugs to induce his journey into the past. His experiences are not portrayed in terms of physical travel, but as a unique mental operation. All the while, the dryness of the film's style, the lack of drama as we usually think of it, makes the imagery more mysterious and more troubling. 
In La Jetée, the plot, as intriguing as it may be, is not what gave it such an impact. The dread and the grief associated with a possible nuclear holocaust was ever-present in the 1960s, and the way it's depicted in the film is more like a summing up of all modern wars than of any specific war. The series of still photos shows the shattered wreckage of cities and landscapes haunted by absence. The stills of the underground survivors, sometimes wearing strange and disturbing garb, has a weird alienating effect. There are occasional sounds, but mostly we just hear the voice of the narrator along with a haunting musical score composed by Trevor Duncan. On the tenth day, images begin to ooze like confessions. A peacetime morning. A peacetime bedroom. A real bedroom. Real children. Real birds. Real cats. The editing, the film's rhythmic montage, creates an eerie feeling as we are continually surprised by the progression of still photos, which seem to say so much more than the narrator cares to explain. When the traveler goes into the past, Marker's choice of imagery transforms time into a dreamlike sense of eternity, and all this in a film that runs only 28 minutes. It becomes evident that the subject is something more enigmatic than the end of the world. The film becomes a mystery about the most intimate relationship between two souls, the mystery of love. In his portrait of the fascination of a man with a woman, Marker was inspired by his favorite movie, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, a reference that becomes explicit in a few of the stills. Then, towards the end of the film, there is one very brief sequence, maybe three seconds long, that is not a still photo, but a motion picture. And that is the point towards which La Jetée has been aiming all along, a point more significant than all the other events and memories we've seen. The film, as it happens, is not meant to be a narrative told by means of a style. In fact, it's not really a story at all. It is a process of thought, a thought put into visual form. That is the thought we are left with, finally, and that is the paradox that resolves itself in La Jetée's celebrated ending. In the time we're going through right now, when a world pandemic coincides with tumultuous social change, where we find ourselves isolated yet together, and over which hangs the specter of climate catastrophe, my thoughts turned to this brilliant apocalyptic film made almost 60 years ago. The now in which Chris Marker's time travel thought experiment took place is the same now in which we live today. And the destiny of our world can still reveal itself to us through the memory of a beloved face. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. 
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.